We just experienced a great uh, annual meeting of the Covenant, the Covenant family that gathers every year and makes strategic decisions for the life of the church at large, the Covenant Church, which has its scope not only in the United States but all over the world. In fact, in places like uh, Congo, there's way more Christians and more churches than we have in the United States. And so it's great to hear what God is doing around the world. It's great to have a new president, John Wenrick, who has been very strategic in the vitality and the growth and the development of our churches for a number of years, and he's the new president, fantastic. Lance Davis also is one who is over the, what's called the order of ministry and building up disciples, and I think he'll just do a great job. And Mary Karsten Surridge is the new president of North Park College, and it was just really a encouraging and great time, and our denomination is good hands with these, these folks. There was one uh, woman who spoke a wonderful message from the book of Ephesians from, I think she's the superintendent of maybe the Midwest Conference, and as she was preaching so passionately, one of our parishioners, not any that's here this morning, but one of them said, why can't you preach that good? (laughs) And since I was preaching on envy, then I became envious. (laughs) Thanks, appreciate it. Good word of the Lord, you know, word from the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we just thank you for the wisdom that you give us, through the experiences of the sacred word, particularly as we look at the book of Proverbs. As these people inspired by you, Father, look at life and give us a perspective, help us develop genuine wisdom and what that means to follow you. Thank you for this special book. Amen. Thanks, Bruce, for the introduction. Thank you. If you ever need to construct a, you're wrestling with how to construct a good Christian worldview of life, sit down with Bruce and have a conversation. I would really encourage you. His books he's written and the things that he's taught are just great. Talk to him. He'd be great. Proverbs is such a great book. We really need to spend time there. As I said earlier in my messages, Billy Graham, every day of his ministry life read a chapter from the book of Proverbs. It doesn't take that long to sit down and just read this wisdom from God that's amazing. Recognizing that they're general principles of life, they're not universal, saying that you can say it's always going to be that way. It wasn't intended or written that way. It was written to say this is the observations, true observations of life that we ought to consider as we walk with God. The subject this morning is envy. In American society, this is a particular major issue. If there's ever an issue in society probably that causes more problems, it's this area. Because we have prosperity mixed with a strong self-focused life. And that's a formula for envy to thrive. And so what I want you to think about, a question for today as we go through this message and this morning and the week ahead, what have you found helpful in overcoming envy? Since it's so much the rhythm of what we face, what have you found that's helpful in overcoming envy. And at the end of the message, I'll give you some maybe help in that area. Charlie Munger says, envy is a real stupid sin because it's the only one you can never possibly have any fun at. (laughs) How about that one? You can't have any fun with that one at all. Envy is a feeling of discontent to resentful longings aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. In many cases, envy wishes for more than what others have. 
It makes that great social comparison that we make with one another. There are two kinds of envy. One is out of inferiority. And success of others becomes, can become a motivation to improve oneself, and that can have a good application. It is as a motivation. But most of the time, envy is malicious. It motivates us to take goods away from somebody else. It should be mine, not theirs. And therein lies the problem. You might think, how do people try to deal with this subject of envy? How do we deal with it? Well, we might feel that we'll become what's called a minimalist, where we'll reduce all that we have down to the minimal so that we then can try to eliminate envy. Warren Buffett credits his ridiculous low salary was keeping envy of his success to a minimum. His ridiculously low salary. That's very unusual, isn't it, in corporate America? But the characteristics of minimalists, maybe this is you, some of the characteristics. If you have an empty attic or storage shed, you might be a minimalist. If walking through Target or Walmart makes you really uncomfortable, then you're a minimalist. If your children are mad because you canceled the cable, you might be a minimalist. If you can't stop giving stuff away and your dog is worried that he's next, you might be a minimalist. If a friend asks you to go shopping and would you rather go to the dentist, you are a minimalist. If you don't want your parents to stop by your yard sale because you are selling their stuff too, you might be a minimalist. If you don't have a junk drawer, folks, you might be a minimalist as well. If you are curious about living with less than 100 things, you might be a minimalist. A couple more. If you follow less than 100 people on Twitter, 100 friends on Facebook, then you are a minimalist. If people who can fit all their belongings in a backpack inspire you, you're a minimalist. Two more. If you read a book and give it away, if you thought about living in a tiny house, you might be a minimalist. And by the way, about tiny houses, that's quite a movement, isn't it? Tiny homes. It's on TV, you can see the constructing of these homes as people uh, are economizing and shrinking in their lives, taking the house industry by storm, affordable, eco-conscious solutions, and it might string from their values, how a person chooses to live and based upon their values, based upon their needs. Maybe they espouse to what Mother Teresa said, live simply so others may simply live. But you want to know something that happens? Even with the idea of shrinking down living in tiny homes, people become envious of someone else's tiny home is better than theirs. Never seem to get away from it, do we? Or we can try to deal with envy by sheer will. I'm not going to be envious of others. Whenever we try to deal with spiritual qualities in our lives by sheer will, it has the opposite effect. It exasperates the problem. We do not develop spiritual qualities by our lives by sheer will, even though it involves the choices we make. The Stoics of Paul's day, day failed in their attempts to, to will virtue. Envy or lack thereof is linked to your desires and what you want to get out of life. It has to do with your values. Your desires gives you an indication of what you value in life, what you envy in life, both good and both bad. Three Dante in Purgatory says, the envious one sits like blind beggars by a wall. Their eyelids are shown, sewn shut. 
The symbolism is apt, showing the reader that it is one of the blindest sins, partly because it is unreasonable, partly because the envious person is sewed up in himself and swollen with poisonous thoughts in the dark, constricted world of almost unendurable self-imposed anguish. Blind beggar by the wall with their eyelids that are shown, sewn shut. At the end of the message, I want to maybe give us some help in this area. An antidote for us, described by the Apostle Paul in the great book of Philippians. The Bible gives us, folks, ultimate solutions for our good. He knows us so intimately well, and he knows what's best for us. So for a moment, what does the wisdom literature teach us about envy? Bruce read some of the passages. I'll make a few more comments about them. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4, I would encourage you when you have time to read the other wisdom literature, and Ecclesiastes is one book that you need to read. I can't think of a book in the Bible that is more relevant to the culture that we live in than Ecclesiastes. It's as if that book was written in American context today because it describes all the various pursuits of life that people go down, roads they go down, avenues they go down to find meaning in life, and he keeps coming back to a same central principle that all value, our eating and drinking and our common things that we do every day are a great gift from God to be enjoyed in relationship to him. And so over and over in that book, he he brings us back to the central premise of our relationship with God. Ecclesiastes chapter four, and I saw that all toil and all achievement springs from one person's envy of another. This is meaningless. This is chasing after the wind. And you know, his observation is correct. It is, it is correct that a lot of all achievement springs from envy with another person that we want to jockey and want to get ahead. It's cynical to say that all achievement comes through the drive for what others have or superiority over another human being. But this desire has often led to great relational breakdowns and grave injustice. In the kingdoms of the world, that other kingdom that we're part of, the kingdom of God, the kingdoms of this world, it's envy that fuels capitalism, while at the same time, envy dooms idealistic socialism. You might want to think about that one. But the desire for achievement is good, since God never intended for people to be static or simply live passive lives. You notice in culture the movement away from competition, winners and losers. And we see it in our culture because it seems so devastating in the competition with one another. And so maybe competition isn't all bad at its root, but sometimes it can be. I grew up in a family that was very, very competitive. We had seven boys and I had one sister. And believe me, we were competitive with one another. It seemed the whole culture of the family was, was competitive, from sports to, to intellectually to education to jockeying for position in the family. But I don't think my folks necessarily fostered that, but in some ways they did, but it was very competitive, and I grew up with that competitive spirit. But there's a good side. It challenges us to be our best, and it breaks fresh ground, notable scientific progress, and other examples of of people through challenge of competition. But when competition or envy turns to bitter rivalry, we have a major relational breakdown, and easily envy will turn to hate. About 40 years ago, a long time ago, I saw a movie that impacted me. It was called Cain and Abel. It was one of the best movies I've ever seen on this whole subject of envy and rivaling each other. 
William Kane was the son of a Boston banker, and when his father died, he took over the bank. And, and there was another fellow by Abel Rosnowski. He was the son of a Polish baron who owned hotels, many hotels in New York. And it was cast in the Depression. And what happened throughout this whole movie it showed the rivalry between these two. During the Depression, the, the, the bank experienced difficulty, and so did this, this hotel chain. And the hotel, uh, this fellow, Adam Abel, went to the bank to try to receive a million dollars so that he could float for a period of time his enterprises. And the bank turned him down. But lo and behold, through a secret channel, he received a million dollars that was given to him. Well, because he was so upset with that banker, the guy that owned the bank, he spent his life trying to destroy that person. Destroy him out of envy. And they rivaled each other and literally went after each other to destroy each other. Lo and behold, in the movie, the son of one and the daughter of the other got together and got married. Can you imagine what that caused in the family? They had nothing to do with each other. They envied each other, they rivaled each other, they sought to destroy each other. Well, this banker finally died. And he had an envelope he wanted to give, that his son would give to Abel, or Cain, or Abel, the other person who had rivaled him. And in that letter, he opened it up, and he read it, and he said, I just want you to know that I was the one who floated that a million dollars for you because I thought you were a good investment. And at the end of the movie, he's absolutely just sobbing and sobbing because they literally destroyed each other, and they destroyed the family over envy and rivalry. That movie I saw 40 years ago, I will never forget, because of the devastating impact of that relationship of these two. So, labor and achievement springs often out of envy for one's neighbor. Envy for our neighbor can be a problem as we fight and claw to outdo one another. Proverbs 23, 17, 18 says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. There's three passages in Proverbs that says, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in fear of the Lord. Always in the fear. Don't be jealous, but for the fear of the Lord of the Lord. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. Now I want to ask you a question to respond to me this morning. That seems rather strange, doesn't it? Why in the world do we as a people of faith envy sinners? I want to think about that for a moment together. Three times in this book he, he lists the issue up. Why do we envy sinners? Now, I have three reasons, but I want to hear from you. Why in the world would we envy sinners as the people of faith? What do you think? Think with me. It seems to be a predominant one that deals with envy and jealousy. Why would we envy sinners, folks? Anybody got a postulation here? Why? Because we're sinners ourselves. <laughs> because we're sinners ourselves. <laughs> Thank you. It's a good start. That's great. Think about it. Why else? Say it again. Okay, they're not accountable to God. Wouldn't it be great to live a life where we don't have to be accountable to God? Free to do what we want when we want to do it? Wouldn't that be great? Why else would we envy sinners? Yeah, Robert. That's very true. He said half the people here don't envy sinners, and that could be very true. 
Absolutely could be very true. So I'm not trying to, I'm, I'm letting him speak from the Bible, okay? Just for a few more moments, think, why do we envy sinners? Over here? Tomas. They seem to be prospering, and they're not following God, and it's a great confusion for us. In many cases, that's true. How come they are being prosperous and doing well, and they don't follow after God? Well, wait a minute. What about us? Think of any other reason. Yep. Yes. That's great. Self-control is difficult to exercise. It's difficult to exercise. And so you don't have to. If you're a sinner and you're not following after God, you don't necessarily have to exercise self-control. That's different for the people of faith. This seems to be three times this appears. And it seems to me that there's a reason because we have a tendency to be envious of others and envious of sinners for some of the reasons that have been given. No restraint, no moral implications to what we do. Spend their resources any they want to. They're not concerned about the kingdom of God and stewardship issues. Or live for the here and now instead of living for the future. We have a different posture because of our faith. We have a different posture because of our future. We live now in light of the kingdom to come. And it's different. Don't envy them, but live in the fear of the Lord always to exercise restraint and realize that we follow Christ, we follow God, and that's where we find our hope and our hope in the future. So he helps us in that. Don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Proverbs 14.30, a tranquil heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Bruce did a great job of talking about that. Tranquility, peace, stillness, and a calmness. A lack of anxiousness. God gives us this element because we live under his sovereign control and his sovereign care. Peace and health go together. When we live a life that's calm and we live a life that is, is not full of anxiousness in our lives, we experience a greater measure of health. Envy brings with it constant turmoil. Envy is the violent excitement that never satisfies. Envy is the destroyer of our health. Envy is the deadly sin. It tortures your mind, consumes your body, and ruins our health. So what have you found helpful in overcoming envy is the question I want you to think about. What have you found helpful as you leave the doors and leave this place? How do we deal with something that's such a root cause in human, it's so much part, it's weaved into the human nature post-fall? Let me give you some suggestions this morning as we leave that will be encouraging to you. Philippians chapter four, I think, gives the answers to us in the experience of the Apostle Paul. I want to remind you that you can't will these qualities. I'm not going to be envious, so I'm going to will it. That's not the direction we go in our spiritual lives. Philippians chapter 2, the the heart of the book is found in chapter 2 where it says, our lives are not about us, but our lives are primarily about serving others. It's other-focused. And Jesus gives the example in his life that he humbled himself even to the point of death because of his deep concern and interest in our lives. And so this whole book oozes with a sense of other-focused rather than personal focus in our own lives all the time. 
And in that verses that were read, the last passage that Michael read, it gives us some clues here. It talks about a thankful heart. He talks to this group of Christians in Philippi about their generosity, their faithfulness, and, the, and they, were, they were so grateful for what God is doing in their lives. There's rejoicing in the Lord. There's an overflowing gratitude for what God has done in our lives. If we want to start dealing with the subject of envy, first we start with the thankful heart. It's unbelievable what God has done for every one of us, even those that have so much less than others. Rejoice in the Lord because of overflowing gratitude of what he has done for us every day of our lives. But then there's a generous spirit. Paul talks about this church, their generosity. They're outlandish. Kindness cures envy by placing the desires to help others above the need to supersede them. Generosity is giving to meet the needs of others makes a huge difference in our lives. Other-focused. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Weep with those who are weep. A generous spirit. A generosity that flows from our relationship with God. And he talks about contentment. A contented person. Supernatural quality. My life or demeanor or my spiritual state is not based upon what I possess or the lack of it. There's a tranquility and a peace even with what I have. It always bothered me from the book of Job, which is a magnificent book on why do we worship God. But I didn't like the statements, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. (laughs) It's not the passage I really like a whole lot in my theology. But I've come to believe that that is so true. What he's trying to get us to understand is the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, because our worship of God is not based upon what God does or what he gives us ultimately. Our relationship with God is based upon God for who he is. We worship him for who he is, not just the blessings that we receive, and if we don't receive the blessings, then we blame God. I know two people in my life, extremely wealthy people in my life, and they have found unbelievable contentment. It hasn't changed them. From the days which they had no resource to the day they became extremely wealthy, these friends of mine have found an incredible contentment in a generous spirit that gives generously to people, and they're not bound up by their wealth. I've also seen people in Haiti, on the streets of Haiti, as I've been there, who are some of the poorest of all people. And your heart aches for their circumstance and their situations, and all you desire is to help. But I've seen in their heart something that's remarkable because they understand this contented person, even in the midst of nothing. They have found an unbelievable demeanor and state of mind. And the answer to it is this, not willing it, but I can do all things who Christ who gives me strength. We can overcome this difficult area of our life the destructive elements of envy by simply recognizing that we cannot will it, we cannot do it on our own, but we realize that it's Christ through the power of the Spirit that gives us strength. As he asks us to be people of a thankful heart, as he asks us to be people of a generous spirit, and he asks us to realize the worship of God, our relationship with him is not based upon the goodies, but it's based upon the powerful reality that he's God in our lives. And so I pray this morning that God will give you strength this week.
He'll give you strength in this area because it's so difficult at times. And I agree with Bob. I've talked to people who said, that, you know, I have other faults. That's not one of my big ones. And for some it is and for some it's not. Every day being grateful for what we have and every day of our lives, our focus is not on us, but our focus is on others and what we can do for them. Weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful that you have never not left us alone to our own devices. You've not let us, left us alone to navigate in these difficult areas of our lives. But Father, you work by the power of your spirit and our inner person to help us to, to see things from your point of view. You've given an example through your son who paved the path for us, a path of what it means to, to serve, what it means to give our lives in service to others. And Father, what is birthed in us when we are people of gratitude and generosity is this overwhelming sense of your presence and this overwhelming sense of contentment in you. Help us, Father, this week. Amen.